turn to Daniel. Of course, we're going through the book of Daniel, chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, and you can see uh, what I've called it, three men and a fire. And most of you know what that means, but we'll all find out together tonight uh, what it means. Um, I'm just going to start reading in chapter 1, just read the first verse with a couple of comments, and then we'll really get into it here. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar, you remember him, made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. Uh, That's 90 feet high, like 9 stories high and 9 feet wide. It's like a big stick, really. And uh, set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And of course, we know where that is today, but we're looking back in Daniel's day. There was probably a large base that would have this thing be able to be stable there, made of gold. Gold was used because according to Daniel's interpretation of his dream, you remember his dream? He was the head of gold in the dream. Gold represented Nebuchadnezzar himself, but instead of a statue with a head of gold, he had one built completely of gold. And it's obvious Nebuchadnezzar was representing himself as the head of an eternal kingdom. He could not possibly have missed what Daniel said about his kingdom coming to an end. I talked about that at the end of the sermon last time where it seemed like he just didn't get it, that Daniel just told him that this kingdom, all of those kingdoms are going to end. But he, Nebuchadnezzar, he wanted to go on, in a sense, forever. And uh, so he was doing all he could to build this thing to get the loyalty of all of the uh, provinces around. And so several pharaohs in, in this time built large statues of themselves, There are ancient statues of Zeus and Marduk and many other of the, quote, gods. Nebuchadnezzar was attempting to unify all the provinces so he could be completely in control of the people. So he was like the head guy, and and he's doing something to get all of these other provinces. We don't, being a Canadian, when I think of a province, I think of all of Canada, the provinces across the country. When you think of the United States, instead we say states, so you think of states. And so this is one man that wanted to be in charge, we could say, of all the states. And he was trying to build a representative of a God that everybody would bow down to and that favored Nebuchadnezzar himself. That's the idea behind it. It was very common in that time. So now look at verse 2 and 3. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Now, that's like saying, just to give you an idea and how many people this would be, that's like saying that the president summoned all of the governors and and the uh, magistrates and all of the various uh, people of importance in each state to come to Washington uh, to 
Well, I can't say bow down to the president. He wouldn't do that. But, uh, <laughs> but that's exactly what's happening here. And, and there, would be, there would be even other nations around him that he had defeated. So there would be thousands of people. I want you to get this image to begin with. There, uh, on this plain of Dura was this incredible statue that would be just kind of awe-inspiring to see. And there would be thousands and thousands of these people coming. And they'd be happy to be there. Very happy to be there uh, because Nebuchadnezzar had defeated all these nations and they had peace at the time. So uh, it goes on to say, so the satraps or satraps, uh, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. So we're to, we're to see this plain uh, uh, with all of these people on it, all dressed in their best of that day, excited to see what's going to happen. So the order of the officials mentioned is probably an order of their importance. For instance, the satraps were rulers over large divisions of the empire, like maybe over a state. The prefects or governors or high-ranking officials uh, within those areas responsible to the satraps or satraps, and there, there were advisors or counselors or judges along with treasurers and other judges or counselors or even justices in this case. And the last on the list is the word magistrates, but it's the same word we would use to name a sheriff or a police chief. And finally, many other lesser officials, many would have come along to see this. The purpose of the gathering was to prove who is loyal to the king. That's the idea. And there were thousands of people present there, and the air would have been charged with anticipation. So there is the, the question, of course, some people want to know, of what the statue actually looked like. Some say it was a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself, but I doubt that. It's more likely it's a statue of a god, small g god. There's a picture of what it might have looked like, as the Babylonian king at this time was not considered a god. So that's why I don't think it was Nebuchadnezzar in the image. And it would have looked something like that. And you can see, if you look at this picture closely, if you can see it, down at the bottom here, there are all these people have bowed down, and there's three men that aren't bowed down. And that's what the whole sermon will be about tonight, in a sense. But then here's, there's more, verse 4. Look at verse 4. They've got one guy, a herald. He would have had a booming voice, and everybody would have been quiet. They want to hear what he's going to say. And the herald would, he would, a herald would loudly proclaim, nations and people of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, many nations that Nebuchadnezzar had conquered were present also. This is a picture that we're looking at here now of the faith of three men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's their Hebrew names. Among the huge crowd on a plane outside of Babylon, and Daniel, that we've been talking about, who was very important to the king, was probably retained with his duties in the city because he had been given a special place of huge importance 
uh, in the city. Now, there's no reason to go over each instrument in Nebuchadnezzar's orchestra, but they consisted of horns and strings and even one instrument like a bagpipe. Now, it might be of interest to know that the word bagpipe, just pipe in our list here, is the word that eventually became a word for symphony. So I'm calling this the Nebuchadnezzar Babylonian Symphony Orchestra. And the list of instruments is not definitive in number. There wasn't just one of each of these instruments. So this would have been a large orchestra, soon to play a musical anthem representing allegiance to the king for most, but doom for three men in the crowd that day. Now, Daniel's three friends weren't wondering if they should bow down or not. They had already decided long before the statue was built. The furnace uh, would have been in constant use as a means of smelting the metal needed to build the statue and baking the bricks, plus the temperature of the furnaces uh, that would have been there would reach 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Imagine the tenseness of this situation. The sight of the furnace with smoke blowing into the sky. I mean, it was a law since early Babylonian times that burning to death was the punishment for disloyalty. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet talks about it in Jeremiah 29, 22. Their terrible fate will become proverbial so that the Judean exiles, Jewish exiles, will curse someone by saying, this will be a curse, may the Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon burned alive. So this was a common way of getting rid of people that kings like Nebuchadnezzar didn't like. Now, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah would have known Nebuchadnezzar uh, well enough to know that he would not change his mind so they could avoid the flames. So they knew that they had to make a decision. And they knew that they couldn't bow down to false gods if they're going to be truly committed to the God who created us all. It's actually one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And those three young men knew that they would never bow down to another god. So, verse 7, Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, as soon as the anthem started, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, for these people, the thousands... This was not a negative thing. When they heard the anthem, it would have thrilled them, like when we hear our national anthem, and they immediately fell down. It wasn't like dominoes. It would have been just thousands all at once, just down, right on their face, worshiping uh, this uh, 90-foot-high idol. But in this case, we know that in spite of the fear and certain death, after they're all bowed down, three men stood alone on the edge of the crowd, 
sticking out like the proverbial sore thumb. Now, this might be the time to ask ourselves an important question. Would we have stood up or bowed down? The answer to that comes from Tozer's statement in The Knowledge of the Holy, a book that I'm always pushing if you want to know all about God. And you know his opening statement in the book is, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a true statement. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, there's another point here. It's easier to stand when you have others alongside of you. Jesus sent his disciples out two by two because we all do better when there's someone alongside us to encourage us and stick with us in danger. We must do all we can to make sure we're one another people. We need others besides ourselves in life and ministry to encourage us and warn us and pick us up when in trouble. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12 reads, Though one may be overpowered, one, two can defend themselves, and a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah have stuck together since their capture and exile 20 years previously. And they know each other well enough to be willing to die together. Now, during the signing of the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Franklin is famous for saying, we must all hang together, or most assuredly, we shall all hang separately, as they're signing that great statement that started this country and made it one of the greatest countries in the world. Christianity has no room for what are often called Lone Ranger Christians. No, Christians, true Christians, are one another Christians. And we've arranged our lives on purpose. So that's the case. We'll be talking a lot about this on Sunday and uh, what Paul taught about this in the first, first Corinthians chapter 1. So verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Nebuchadnezzar hadn't seen what had happened yet. Now, these astrologers or Chaldeans were among the men who could not interpret the king's dream, and they were jealous of what happened to Daniel and his three friends. So now they have a chance to get back at them. The word denounced is a well-known idiom suggesting severe hatred and bitterness. And in verse 9, look in your Bibles, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Now, when I read that, I, I think of one word, hypocrite. <laughs> I mean, they're only there because they hate these three men. And they're, uh, and they're upset at the king because he put them in charge. And now they're there, probably not with a big grin on their face, but they're there very respectfully. And Nebuchadnezzar's in front of them, and they say, Oh, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, a lot of anti-Semitism here, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's their Babylonian names, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. I could just imagine them being so worked up. 
Now, this is important. This is clearly inspired by Satan. Of course, that's very much the theme of the whole Bible. Remember when Judas left the Passover meal before Jesus was crucified? It reads in our Bible, Satan entered him. The reason this is happening in Daniel's time is it's an attack on the Messianic line, the line of, uh, of the Messiah, who is Jesus, the line he'll come through a long time later. Satan has tried to rid the world of the Jews from the beginning. Satan is trying to rid the world of God's people today, Jews and non-Jews alike. And all over the world, it, it, it shouldn't, well, I'm sure none of us in this church are shocked, but there's Christians dying every day just because they're Christians all over the world. And Satan's attempts are still ongoing, and we're instructed by Paul in the book of Ephesians. You all know these scriptures really well, but we'll be studying them in detail soon as we go through Paul's writings. Uh, the instructions in Ephesians are to know the schemes of the devil. We need to know his plans, and we can know his plans, and then to put on the full armor of God and resist the devil. And then Peter, the apostle, tells us in his epistle, his letter, that if we draw near to God and resist the devil, he'll flee from us. Certainly that is what our three friends are now doing in the trial of their lifetime. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't even conceive of such disobedience. How soon he forgets the God who had interpreted his dream. And it says in verse 13, after listening to these advisors, furious with rage. I mean, literally, it's a, the wording in the Hebrew is a picture of someone who's totally lost control, or just as angry as they could get. Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men, the three of them, were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Is this true? I mean, he is really angry. An absolute monarch like Nebuchadnezzar could, could not have it known that he would allow anyone to disobey his decrees, much less these captives on whom he had bestowed great honor and authority 20 years previously. But due to Daniel's influence especially, Nebuchadnezzar was willing to give them a second chance. And so in verse 15, we read about it. Now, you three, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and, and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. Nebuchadnezzar had experienced what our creator God could do, and he had acknowledged the superiority of Daniel's God over his own gods. If you were here last week, you'll remember it, Daniel chapter 2, verse 46. After the dream was told by Daniel and all of that, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Well, he's right. And a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. He revealed his dream. 
without being told the dream. But Nebuchadnezzar had only added Yahweh, who we just sung about, to the pantheon of gods he believed in, and he certainly did not believe that Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah's God could uh, keep them from being executed by fire. We never need to run away when things get hard. This is something that's really important, just in life in general, in every area of life. What God allows to come our way is to make us more dependent on him and not to destroy us. You see, with these three young men, there was no battle in their minds. They had already settled their allegiance to the living God long before they were faced with this dilemma. Socrates once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. I've always liked that statement, and I've thought about it often. Question. Do you spend time thinking about your life, really thinking about it deeply? Do you spend time coming to grips with the biblical view of life, what the Bible has to say about our lives? These three men had. No doubt they had talked long into the evenings about how they would handle the idolatry of Babylon and stay loyal to their God. They'd been tested previously. When it came down to it, they had already decided irrevocably that they would be willing to die rather than worship the image of a false god. Is that the kind of relationship you have with the God of the Bible? Anything less than that is not worth living for. It's just not worth it. These three men were living by principle, not by circumstances. They didn't believe in our modern idea of situational ethics, where we say things like, well, but in this case, no, no, what really counts is that we do the right thing. Stuttered Kennedy was a chaplain during World War II. I've taught a lot of chaplains, and so some of you who are here tonight in the uh, South Sudan. He was often on the front lines of battle, and he wrote to his little boy these words. I've quoted them before. I really am moved by this. The first prayer I want my son to learn to say for me is not, God, keep daddy safe. But God make daddy brave. And if he has hard things to do, God, make him strong to do them. Son, life and death don't matter, but right and wrong do. Daddy dead is daddy still, but daddy dishonored before God is something too awful for words. I suppose you would like to put a bit about safety too, and mother would like that, I'm sure. Well, put it in afterwards for it really doesn't matter nearly as much as doing what is right. Wow. These three men had confidence in their God. They had a relationship with their God. They were familiar with Scripture and may have been thinking of the writings of the prophet Isaiah, uh, who wrote uh, in Isaiah chapter 43, then when you go through deep waters and great trouble, I'll be with you. I think of the Exodus and the Red Sea. When you go through rivers of difficulty, I think of the Jordan River, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, it's a metaphor, but that's not, it's not a metaphor that they're learning now, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. So verse 16 in our 
in the chapter, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even, and, and they're used, that's their Babylonian names. So the reason that they're used this way is that they're in Babylon, Babylonian gods, so-called gods are, stra- are around them, they've learned the Babylonian language, and now King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian monarch, uh, wants to kill them. And I think that what they have to say here had to unnerve Nebuchadnezzar somewhat because there's no doubt in my mind at all. They weren't like, you know, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar. They weren't, they weren't, they weren't shaken at all. They were serious. And they were even like they didn't say it in a nasty way to the king. I don't have, it was King Nebuchadnezzar. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he'll deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. I would characterize it as respectable but firm. They did not attack the king, but made clear their faith and trust in God. They also acknowledged that believing in their God did not guarantee they wouldn't be executed. In fact, their statement says that if they do perish in the flames, it would only be because God willed it. Jerome, who uh, translated the Bible into Latin, called the Latin Vulgate in the 4th century, wrote a commentary on Daniel. Here's just one sentence from it. Thereby, they indicate that it will not be a matter of God's inability, but rather of His sovereign will if they do perish. This incident is an important statement of God's sovereignty and our position as His children. God does not always keep us from trials. There's a teaching that goes around, not as much today as it used to, that says, if you believe something without doubting, it will happen. It's an untrue teaching, and it's very dangerous. It does say in the book of James, by the way, that if we ask for wisdom and don't doubt, God will give us wisdom. That's good. But nowhere does it say that if we believe, we'll be rich and healthy, and neither poverty nor cancer will get us. One author says quite correctly, the purpose for trials may not always be understood, but God simply asks that his children trust him even when it is not easy. And in Job, we just not too long ago, in the, a year or so ago, studied all through the book of Job. He went through troubles worse than anything most of us could ever imagine, and yet Job was still able to say in the midst of all of his losses, losing his children, the confidence of his wife, and all of his prosperity and his health, And he said, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was sentenced to hang by Hitler himself. He had been part of a plot to assassinate Hitler and it failed. The testimony of the men he ministered to in the jail before he uh, was hung was that Bonhoeffer was cheerful and full of hope. His last words before the noose was placed on his neck, were recorded for us by a captured fighter pilot who heard it. So the last thing that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said was, 
before they dropped him through the hole. This is, for me, the end, the beginning of life. I have read C.S. Lewis's Narnia series several times. Now, they're supposed to be children's books. Uh, I read them to my son, and I read them to my daughter and uh, when they were little. And I've read them myself, some of them more than even three times in one particular book, the one I'm going to quote from in a minute. It's called The Last Battle. And, of course, it's a place called Narnia, which is a made-up place, just a, a, a beautiful place where these, well, it wasn't a beautiful place. I mean, there were all kinds of troubles in it, and it was a picture of the Christian life. And uh, Aslan, the great lion, was the picture of Jesus. And uh, it, it ends this way. All their life in this world, and of all their adventures in Narnia, had only been the cover and the title page. L let me read it just a little different. All our, our life in this world we live in, and all our adventures on earth are only the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read. Oh, I love this. I mean, the great story. They've died now, and they've gone somewhere else. And so chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Every time I read that, I just get chills. You know, I think I, I wouldn't, if I were to die today, that's what I'd experience. Chapter one in my new life, and every chapter of the life after that gets better yet, forever. In Romans uh, chapter five, Paul offers a theology of suffering. And I think it's really important to think through. Romans chapter five, starting at verse three. Paul says to us as Christians, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Now, that's really something. We can, or I can read it this way. It's a little more communicative. We can also rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope in salvation and this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with this love. Now, we all experience trials in our lives, physical trials, relational trials, spiritual trials. There are no lives lived unscathed. So trials make us better if we refuse to give in to despair, but choose instead to trust while having an eternal perspective. You remember on Sunday, if you were here, we can choose joy no matter what. It's a choice we can make. No matter how sick we are, no matter how, uh, how discouraged we might be, we can stop. If we're Christians, we have the power to do that and choose joy because we know God's in charge. And it's obvious these three young men expected life beyond this life. They refused to become idolaters. They had examined their lives. They live and examine life, and it was worth living. Now look at verse 19 in your Bibles. Then Nebuchadnezzar, he wasn't so happy, was furious 
with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude attitude toward them changed. So he was an out-of-control, angry, raging king. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. It's just a metaphor, meaning as hot as they could get it. And in verse 20, and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. Now, by this time, by the way, people are gathering all around. The king was making sure there could be no resistance. Verse 21. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. Now, normally, their clothing would have literally exploded into flames as soon as they were even close to the opening of the furnace, and that proved true, but not for Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, because they were related to God. In verse 22, it tells us the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers. They would have killed them instantly who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, the three Hebrew men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. They were thrown into the furnace near the top rather than the sides, but the closeness to the flames immediately killed the soldiers. But what happened next was miraculous. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet. He was up higher, being able to look down and see in. And in amazement, he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up, bound up, and threw into the fire? And they replied, well, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. It's all plural, a son of the gods. Now, this is important for us to really get a grip on here. When we become Christians, we are set free from the rule of our sin nature. We all have a sin nature. We're born with it. We still sin when we become Christians, but we are now able to choose not to. Sin no longer is the controlling factor in our lives as it was before we were saved. So when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were thrown into their fiery trial, the only thing that burned was the Babylonian ropes that were meant to restrict them. They were immediately set free as we are in salvation. And in verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, And Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. You know, I've always wondered, what if he hadn't have done that? I wonder how long they would have stayed in the furnace because it looked like they were having a good time. (laughs) So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. There would be at least hundreds all around them. And they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched. And this is the most amazing one. There was no smell of, I'm going to say it this way on purpose, of that Babylonian fire on them. This was an indisputable, amazing miracle. Nebuchadnezzar has 
No idea how this could have happened. He sees a fourth man, and I would say that the three men were enjoying their time in the furnace. He calls the fourth man a son of the gods. The question is, who is the fourth man? The Talmud asserts, Jewish Talmud, that it was the archangel Gabriel. But Nebuchadnezzar would have believed that the man in the flames was a god, a small g god, or an angel. He uses both words. The bottom line is, this could have been a reincarnate, reincarnate appearance, it's called a theophany, of Jesus, could have been, or an angel. In either case, it doesn't matter. God had sent this angel or Jesus in his reincarnate state to rescue Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. As he also did when Jesus came and died for our sins so we could be delivered from the bonds of the world and spend eternity in heaven. Imagine the emotional impact on those around these men. Not even the smell of fire. Impossible. Unbelievable. Only God. Now what happened is a picture of God's divine protection of his people, including us. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, we read these words from the pen of Moses. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has appointed to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the people of God, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace out of Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh, and God released them through the water through the Red Sea. And to be a people of his inheritance as you now are. And then verse 28. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Now, I've taught these verses many times, and I've heard multiple sermons on the passage, and, but my takeaway line remains the same. You've, I'm sure many of you have heard it before. It is better to be in the fire with Jesus than compromise one's faith in the world. It is better to be in the fire with Jesus than to compromise one's faith in the world. Verse 29 and 30. Therefore, I decree, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just think about the circumstances. He has the ear of everybody, all the nations he defeated, uh, all of the people uh, throughout his land and all of the various provinces. He had, he, he, this miracle happened clearly so that they could hear what he's about to say. And he says, therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be burned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar admired the courage of these three men who defied his decree to obey their God. 
our lives must clearly picture our commitment to Jesus. Our lifestyle, our attitudes, our risks, our relationships, all should picture a difference from how the world lives. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were greatly rewarded by the king for their commitment to the God of the Bible. There is always blessing when we obey God. I believe one reason this miracle is uh, here is so that believers during all ages will remember that there truly is nothing to worry about. There really isn't. Worry is anxiety. It's such a a dead-end street. And I, I wish I could say that I never worried, but I actually think I worry less than I used to. Valerie, what do you think? <laughs> I hope so. And I sure beat myself up a lot sometimes. I'll go in and literally get in my knees and say to God, I am so sorry the way I acted today. You know, We can live with victory regardless of the circumstances of our lives. Our God reigns and rewards and gives us eternal life. Daniel's three friends eventually died, and we'll meet them someday. Jesus is our example. He asked for God's will. God allowed him to be crucified. Resurrection followed, and for us, eternal life with Jesus. What could be better than that? We will all die, every one of us, but because of Jesus, we will all be resurrected. Every injustice will be dealt with, and we'll spend eternity with our Lord Jesus in heaven where every chapter is better than the last. I'm rereading Chuck Swindoll's book on hope right now. Now, I know I've really been pushing his books lately, but I'd do it without any apology. Uh, He wrote the book, uh, the the one that I talked about on Sunday. He wrote the book, Life is 10% of What Happens to You, and it's uh, 90% of How You React. And I I finished reading it uh, on Sunday, and, uh, and, of course, I use it as an illustration and some illustrations in the book. Uh, that's, his latest, that's his latest book he wrote for 2023. In 2022, uh, he wrote a book called Clinging to Hope, and I'm about halfway through it for the second time now. And it's, has, it's, it's given me such... Uh, um, it's given me r- real hope, but it's thrilling to read, especially when you think of Chuck Swindoll and... He's, what, 88 years old or well, maybe 89 now and still ministering to millions of people around the world. Uh, and I, I'm going to read you from the book before we do communion together uh, just to uh, whet your appetite. And uh, you, know, you can't make people read. As my friend Charlie used to say, you've heard it, that you, you can't uh, uh, make a horse. How do you, how's it go? You can't make a horse? But you can put salt in his oats. Yeah, (laughs) so here's some salt. Swindle asks the question, what is the purpose of troubles? When the inevitable troubles of various kinds come, remember the truth about them. They have a purpose. We're not just tossed into a crowd and left to fend for ourselves as God runs the world uh, from a distance. The various troubles that occur are all part of his plan When we accept this, we can view them as opportunities for growth. Notice what James says, the book of James in the New Testament, James and Jesus grew up together. When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. A trial is a faith test that 
exercises your endurance not to break you, but to strengthen you. So James says to let the, that endurance grow. Don't look for an escape hatch. Instead, lean into God's plan and learn from the trial. Let it water your roots so you can grow deeper in your relationship with him. As I've looked back over the decades of my life, Swindoll writes, I've learned the value of yesterday's pain. Our trials are where the most important lessons are learned. Sometimes we learn from our own failures or through difficult situations that we ourselves have caused. Often we grow from uh, falling prey to others' poor choices or circumstances beyond our control. And when we value the lessons learned through our trials, they will help us to become mature. They all have a purpose. They are all part of our loving Heavenly Father's plan to conform us to the image of His Son. Recognizing that troubles have a purpose is much better than always asking, why did this happen? Why me? Why now? Instead, we can ask much more fruitful questions. What can I learn from this about God's grace and about the love of His Son, about the comfort of the Holy Spirit? What important truth is God teaching me at this point in my journey? When we shift our focus from why to what, we can begin to face the inevitable troubles of life as opportunities for growth and great joy. Well, we're here tonight also to have communion. And the reason that we can have this joy and experience of life is only because Jesus went through that fiery trial and he didn't back out either. And it says in our Bibles that Jesus went to the cross because of the joy set before him. And of course, the joy set before him was the cross and our salvation. He saw that as joy. It was terrible to take on the sins of the whole world. This holy man who is not guilty of any sin. But he rose from the dead so that none of us ever has to experience anything like that kind of a death. And that we can live for him with joy, no matter what the condition of our life, the circumstances of our life, none of that makes any difference. Uh, we can live with joy. I've said this probably the last time I'll, I'll bring it up because it's, it happened just on the weekend, but I did a memorial service on the weekend for Jay, uh, Susan Arnold's husband. And uh, when that memorial service was over, it was a large service. I don't think I've ever had any more joy being at a service where I heard about the life that Jay lived and heard his friends talk about him and the joy, even among the tears, was something to see that you only see. I have a friend that owned funeral homes. He sold them now, but he, he used to say to me, I used to do memorial services in, the, in his funeral home, and uh, he used to say to me, he says, you have no idea what it's like to be at a funeral of people that don't know Jesus versus the funeral of people that do. He says, the funeral that you don't know Jesus, you're just so glad that day's over. The funeral of the people that do know Jesus, you're just, you feel like you could conquer the world. Because to die is better yet. But to live is for joy and love and peace and all of the fruit of the Spirit. So, Father, uh, help us as we uh, do communion together over the next uh, few minutes and uh, to remember the cost of our
salvation, that you died for our sins, and because of that, we never have to die the death that you died, that we can live a life that we could have never lived before. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at uh, uh, the body and blood of Jesus, that we'll remember until he comes how wonderful it is uh, what he did for us. Thank you for loving the world so much that you sent Jesus to die for our sins.